The UDR cast is not affiliated and does not represent any 12-step fellowship. I, Bill Ward, the host of the UDR cast, will be sharing my experience and my journey of recovery. That does include, but is not limited to, the literature contained in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps. Our guests will be sharing their own path to recovery and what has worked for them. The UDR cast encourages and supports all paths to recovery. Welcome everybody to the UDR cast. UDR stands for Uncover, Discover and Recover. My name is Bill Ward and I'm coming to you from the recovery capital of Canada, Calgary, Alberta. Here we are going to discuss everything recovery, different perspectives, different experiences, both with the people I know and with others from around the world. If you resonate with anything you've heard on this episode today, we ask that you share it with anyone who you think may benefit from it. If you have any questions or comments, please find us at billward.life and send us a message in the info section. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. If you are interested in more recovery content, you can find the buttons for the YouTube channel and other social media outlets on the homepage, and you will be redirected to those platforms. We can recover. One person, one family, one community at a time. on YouTube on the Bill Ward Life channel. It will also be on audio, extracted audio, for the Spotify UDR cast. Um, today our guest is Janine H. from Medicine Hat. I met Janine a few months ago in recovery in Calgary, in the big book in the recovery capital of Canada in Calgary. And, you know, she had a thirst, man. She had a thirst. I remember seeing her share at a meeting and and I could just tell she was passionate about growing and, and trying to learn and grow. And since I've gotten to know her a bit, I, I know some of her backstory. And I know that she's been around for quite a few years, disappeared. Um, things didn't get better out there. And she's back again. She's got, what do you got, about 10 months? So, Janine, I just want to welcome you back or welcome you here for the first time. And thank you for joining us and uh, going to share your story today for us. Thank you. I'm really excited about the stuff that you're doing too and this is really good that I get an opportunity to be on the show with you. Today we're going to go through Janine's story. Um, normally I don't I don't bring on a lot of people unless they have a year sober or more typically. I don't bring on a lot of people if they're not done their their full first circuit of their recovery program whatever that may be. But today I wanted to bring Janine on for a couple reasons. One, because I felt her passion for her own recovery and, and I could see her desire to learn and grow and, and try to really get this in a way that maybe she hasn't before. Um, yes, she has 10 months sober, but I also think that a lot of people can grow very quickly in this program if they're really digging in and if they seek out, you know, higher water level recovery. So, so Janine, you know, that being said, you know, can you maybe take us back in your history of, you know, maybe in your family before you became alcoholic, maybe give us a quick little, little rundown of like how maybe you grew up 
and and let's start walking down the path of how you grew up and how you started slowly using maybe you know did you feel like you didn't fit in did you feel like you fit in fine you know did you have a great family you know these kind of things can you kind of start there and then we'll just walk up up through your life um i was born in medicine hat and my parents are pretty normal as far as parents go um they divorced when i was eight and at that time i i wanted to be with both parents and it was uh probably the first traumatic thing i can think of that happened it was a really normal childhood in the sense that all my memories are good there was nothing that stands out until around eight when i um was asked which parent that i wanted to live with so i wanted to stay with my mom because the attachment my dad was really absent he worked a lot he um had a life outside of the family home that i still don't know exactly what that looked like but he wasn't around a whole bunch so um i wanted to stay with my mom because i was attached to her uh but my dad he was moving to calgary and he um enticed me with this uh dangling carrot of if you come there's going to be stepbrothers and sisters and i wanted that so bad which uh I suspect is because I was lonely and I I was already looking for where I could fit in and where I could belong because I the how how old were at you this so point far I was eight. at this point um <clears throat> yeah so okay. I went and I moved with my dad at that time we moved I moved with him to Calgary and he had this new relationship and these stepbrother and stepsisters and um he recreated this family we got the rollerblades for easter i remember that and i hung out with these kids and all was all was well until suddenly the relationship was no more and it was suddenly and we um lived lived just my dad and i he would go into this sad spin out and he he'd need me and he would he would um i think inadvertently use me to to breathe and then he'd be in a new relationship again. So this went on until I moved out at 15. Um, But each relationship got subsequently, uh, the women became more more mean, um, more substance use. My dad, I I don't know if he's alcoholic or not. He doesn't drink anymore. He, I've seen him drunk a couple times, but nothing like how I can relate to drinking. Um, but he went through these relationships similar to how somebody would go through a uh, substance. And every time the breakdown would be worse, every time the relationship would be worse, and it would be this cycle. And um, I think a, a, a core belief that maybe came to be as a result of that coming into adulthood was, was this uh, taking care of the needy. Um, I, it, it became a pattern in my relationships to follow. Um, so up until 15, when I moved, he, he, he... Okay, hold on. I want to go back. So already you're noticing, or you've looking back, noticed that you had this desire to take care of the needy. But you had mentioned something kind of important there a minute ago as you were going through the beginning part of your story that your dad was using you for grieving. What do you mean... When you so say that. when he would be in a relationship, all would be well again, and it would be a honeymoon period of um, putting things back together in a way that looked normal. Um, 
the gifts, the, the kids that would come with the relationship um, and the family would be put back together and he would go on working. He, working would be his thing and I would kind of fall to the wayside of this new relationship and the new production of the relationship and um, and his work. He, he worked a lot. He still, he still works a lot. Um, but when the relationship fell apart, it would be like, whew, I, I notice you. And he would be, in, as the relationships went on and as I matured, I saw how broken he was. So I don't know if he was broken down every single time like that, but towards the last couple of relationships, um, he was pretty broken. And it, I remember him sobbing. I would have been 14. And he was like, why does this always happen to me? Why does this always happen to me? And um, just feeling so helpless to help him. And I was also baffled. I don't know why this happens to you. And feeling so guilty and responsible for his happiness. Like if I am to, to leave him, if I go off and do whatever, uh, what's he going to do? Because everybody's leaving him. And, and so this over responsibility and this sense of guilt that I never even understood towards caring for my father and being being that person that um, he could rely on and that I was the stability. And um, it, that, like I said, that was a pattern that that became in my relationships to follow. So he was using you in a way to like, uh, as a therapist, so he would kind of confide in you and talk to you about these, these adult issues and as he's kind of confiding in you to whatever degree, maybe it's light, maybe it's medium, maybe it's heavy, I don't know. But you're starting to develop like the guilt and the shame and feeling sorry for your dad and, and already kind of having the attachment to, well, I can't really leave my dad alone. I don't want him to feel like that. So these things are already developing at a pretty yeah, he young never, age. Yeah, he never actually really talked about anything because that would have made things a lot simpler. He just was suddenly interested in me and noticed that I was there and then it was Janine and my dad and it was like it's just you and me kid you know that type of attitude until he had another relationship and then and then I would fall to the wayside as he put together the new family and the new relationship and his work resumed as it was so I had the, the attention from him and he relied on me for the comfort more so than a dialogue but yes mm. that's what you're saying and and at a young age, did you feel like, okay, I have my dad back right now and this is really good? And, or did you have the thought of like, holy, I'm going to lose my dad again as soon as he finds a woman? Was there any thinking like that when you were younger as you're going through these things? I remember so the moment that I was talking about, I was just trying to get back there in my memory and I, I, I didn't remember, I don't remember thinking either of those things actually. I remember thinking like, I don't know why your relationships break down because he was, he was crying and saying, why does this happen to me? Why does this happen to me? And I was thinking, why does it mm -hmm. happen to you? You know, like, well, I don't understand why it happens because my dad, like he's a, he's like, especially now like that he's grown and matured and we have a great relationship and he's met, married long-term 25 years to my stepmom now. Um, he, he's a amazing person and he, he, you know, I didn't date him obviously, but, um, he, he didn't have extreme addictions. He wasn't uh, physically abusive. I didn't, he got quiet when he was, you know, he wasn't verbally abusive. There wasn't any of the things I could actually see why these things were breaking down. So I remember being 
confused. Like, I don't know why this is happening. And just, it was almost like I was having an outer body experience watching this broken person. And, and I, I remember thinking in that moment, this will never happen to me. And thus was born my extreme sense of self-reliance that I was never going to let somebody, I was never going to mm. depend on somebody that when, when it didn't work out because relationships I could see from this point in my life don't work out, they're short lived. And then this, this splitting of the assets and this breaking of, you know, the human soul every time. And I was like, I just, I'll be okay if I don't depend on anybody to that's ever going to be in a position to hurt me in that way. And up until this point of my life, I've been pretty successful in that way, which has brought me, you know, to my knees on a spiritual level on self-reliance to the point that it almost killed me. Okay. So going back, I stopped you when you were like 14, 15 years old. Um, kind of take, take us back to 14, 15 years old. What was going on and, and where did so you go from So by 14 there? or 15, we, um, I had not been to a school yet for a complete year. I was always moving around because my dad was moving around for, you know, um, the relationship. The relationship would break down and I'd be in a different part of the city. So I'd be going to a different school um this one this had started from kindergarten even in a smaller city so i don't really know what was up with that i'd move zones and they'd move me schools so i had never really gotten roots and i i know now from being in the field of work that i am that that's a huge protective factor is to be in the same school in the same community so teachers can have an eye on you and you get you get a feeling of belonging so up until this point i was just kind of drifting along um and at 14 i was in grade eight and this was the first school it was in Invermere now and I had just come back from living a year at my grandma's in Medicine Hat while my dad got himself together again and um, I came back to to Invermere at 14 to start the school year again and he was in a another relationship so I just met this lady and it was it was the last of them that I could tolerate she was really she was really really unwell um, so I was in a school where it was like the, the place that I had the longest amount of schooling, I was going on to my second year. So I had a couple of good friends um, that I had made that were continuing on. One of them, uh, we were getting into trouble. We were starting to skip. She came from a single mom home. Uh, we were starting to skip and just kind of questioning the ways of our parents. Um, I didn't have a lot of attachment to my dad because we didn't, we didn't talk the whole time. So when it came to this age where now I am, um, figuring out that what are you going to do when you say no? What are you actually going to do? Kick me out, you know? And so I was starting to go to parties and my dad was saying, you know, don't sneak out, don't do this, don't do that. And I realized there wasn't anything that he could do um, because he wasn't going to kick me out. And I uh, wasn't feeling like I was losing anything in, in the relationship because there wasn't a whole ton. Um, we didn't have a, a deep emotional relationship at this point. So I wasn't really listening to my dad. I was skipping school a lot and I had my first drink when I was 15. And where's your mom? So my mom, um, she relocated from Medicine Hat to the island to Duncan, BC, outside of Victoria. When I was, I was probably 10. So at the time she, at the time it was like, she would phone me in the mornings, maybe three times a week. And I didn't tell her anything that was going on ever because I didn't want to get my dad in trouble. So she was oblivious for years. It was into my adult life that I started to tell her some of the things that had went on. 
Wow, so you spent a good number of years already trying to protect your, your dad and, and kind of navigate how much harm your dad would receive from, from your mom or, you know, just manipulating the situation at a young age, thinking, thinking it was a good thing to do, though, right? Trying to protect your dad. Right, right? and, you know, like a big theme of my recovery today is speaking the truth. And um, that was nothing that was ever going on in the house, like between people, let alone anybody that I would be able to, to do that with. So I remember uh, exactly what you said, doing, doing gymnastics around what to say and who to say it with. And I don't want to get this person in trouble. And I don't want to worry my mom when she's so far away. So I really, I really uh, had a lot on my, I put a lot on my shoulders in that way because I couldn't, I didn't go to either parent for for different reasons but um i lived in like a kind of imaginary world by myself where i i just thought a lot about things and tried to solve my problems on an intellectual basis i um i can see how the the, the skill of twisting twisting the truth to be able to make it okay for everyone else was um starting from a much 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 earlier place than when I first started drinking. <clears throat> wow. And I like how you said twisting the skill of twisting the truth. <laughs> right. Um, and, and as we kind of develop a lot of these patterns in our younger years, we do get a little bit of value out of it and we do become skillful at it. And it kind of, you know, I'm going to say in a way it kind of expands our life and, we're able to maybe protect people or seemingly it looks that way. And it looks like these, this dishonesty is working for us. And, you know, I've had a number of people over the years say, you know, there's levels to honesty, right? And, and obviously you're kind of working with the levels of honesty, um, ideology and trying to like, you know, make it work for you and make it work for others and, and, really developing this what we would call a defective character that ends up being really hard to relinquish as, as the years go on and ultimately is a big driving force that fuels our our addiction mm -hmm. as we will get later into your story so so i don't know let's uh let's keep going along yeah, so i um so at the, the, the first drink um i was by this point i was uh living in a house in invermere my dad and his current his current uh, they were engaged had built a house so they were all tied up financially and um, they were at this the place of separation so thing, things were pretty tense in that house because my dad was in the basement she was upstairs and she was a full-blown addict um, that was I, I think a big contributing factor to why um, my dad was uh, ending the relationship or however that went down because she was a drug user and she was a drinker and um she was violent and so i was avoiding the house as much as i could so um i ended up in this little town canal flats and i, I was with some older kids and had some coolers and it was like i drank differently than all of them drank all the coolers got sick all over the place and i was totally embarrassed the next morning but it never occurred to me like whoa I should not be doing that you know I, I i never had the thought that that was something that like i knew that was going to be my thing pretty much from the very beginning that i was going to have an issue from with it 
Um, and the, how am I going to control this kicked in pretty early. Like how, how, how am I going to make it so that I don't puke the next time? How am I going to figure out how to do this properly? Like everyone else that was almost instantaneous. So you realized as you're drinking with these kids that this was going to be a problem already. I realized that this was what I was looking for. So everything was more colorful mm. and I felt that I belonged and I was on this swing set in this little town. And I was like, this is the most amazing moment I've ever had in my life. And it felt like the people that I was with, we had been friends forever and it just totally took, took the edge off of reality. And it made me feel like I had no worries at all. And that, that this is what it would be like if, if everything inside of me was whole and fixed. Okay. And you said that you already knew that you were drinking differently because none of them drank as much as I did and none of them threw up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sounds about right. And you're drinking in a park in a little, little town somewhere in Alberta or it was, was it Alberta? And I'm not too sure that all of them thought that that was the magical moment of their life that they had ever experienced up until that point. And you actually hadn't known these kids for your whole life either, right? Most of them. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in our book, it talks about driven by those hundred forms of fear Mm -hmm. and self delusion. And, you know, already some of that self delusion is already kicking in. And, no, that's one of the things that I think that us as addicts and alcoholics, we we forget or we don't even know that we're driven by the self-delusion and and making up these things in our in our heads that we believe or or whatever and you know it kind of comes to fruition much later which i'm sure it will in your story so uh yeah let's keep kind of walking through those teenage years into your early 20s and show us how it got worse so what happened the drinking um I hadn't quite figured out that I, I could change change the way that I was drinking with some chemistry yet. So I was playing around with, you know, puking with the vodka and the blackouts and not understanding what was happening to me when it wasn't happening to everyone else. And when I look back on my drinking, like if I could, if I could undo uh, from the horrific moments and the dangerous situations and the times when I felt like I was going to die from over drinking and overdoing it. It was like 15 to probably when I first went to treatment, it was a lot of um, drinking that was like horrific, you know, like blacking out at a party and waking up with like burns of, of like one time in the, in, in Vermeer, we lit fight like um, tires. We put a whole bunch of big tires and they all melted and it goes up into the sky and then comes down and I had taken off my hoodie and I was running around in a t-shirt and I had like rubber into the skin of me, you know, just, and didn't have any recollect, recollection of it. And um, I was horrified, like, like scared. So our book talks about in a vision for you and the, the four horsemen um, where it's like the, you're, you're waking up and it's like this terror and frustration of like, how, how did this happen? And, and, um, I didn't quite have the frustration of how did this happen again, but it was more of like, I embarrassed myself again um, by drinking and the bewilderment and the despair, maybe not the despair yet, but definitely I was having the horror and the 
<clears throat> the whole, uh, how is this happening to me? And I continue to allow it. I think I'm stuck. And there, there was no fight really. It was like, this is just something I'm accepting because I don't see any other way, nor do I want to give this up. So it was, it's, it was a really interesting time because I was feeling really lost at that point of my life because I'd moved out. So, so home life at this point, the stepmom was getting really out of control. I was at a house party when I was 15 and she got one of her friends. She must've been maybe 35. She got one of her friends to come to this house party and they were going to beat me up. So this is the mentality of this lady. So I'm, I'm in the bathroom at this house party and some people are yelling at her. And they're like, you're an adult. You shouldn't be here to beat up this kid. And, and like, they're just this big in, insane commotion. And, uh, <clears throat> I thought I'm moving out. Like, I don't want to go home to this lady. And uh, I was scared of her. And so I'm, I moved in with a friend there and that was just the beginning of um, me moving out. So I never did go back home. And okay. So this woman is together with your father and you live with them at your father's house and she's sending people to this party to beat you up. Um, where was your dad's place in all this? Did you talk to him about it? Did you say like, what's going on dad or anything like that? So this, this is actually a sticking point with a lot of people. And it's something I've really been, I don't really know how to answer that question because, um, it, it, it's a theme that continues to be pointed out to me that I, I know is there, but I've spent so many years just like this is the norm. So the questions that come up are very similar to yours. Where was your dad in all this? Or like, why wasn't your dad protecting you or why? And, and um, the healing in that area hasn't come completely yet. As it gets pointed out, I can still feel a raw part of me. Um, but my stepmom has been amazing in like acknowledging that and validating that. Um, and I've come to in the relationship that I have with my dad today, which like, again, I feel, feel a little bit guilty talking about this because he's so much different now. Um, but this is the truth of my story and it is what it is. So, um, the way that he is now, I, I, I believe that he, um, perhaps, perhaps he has the same ways of going about things and, um, he's got his own defects that come up in certain ways. And I think he just has a hard time standing up for himself and even at the cost of, and in, mm -hmm. in the line of fire for his for his child. So he, did I have a conversation? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Um, has he ever really stood up to, to come to bat for me? Not really. Um, but he has in the background. So never direct to somebody, but he's always been supportive in the background. And I used to be resentful. Um, but in the process of my own recovery, I come to just understand him as he is and accept that and actually see him for what he's doing. And that he, he's, he is my biggest supporter. It just doesn't come in the way that, you know, it should have, um, or maybe even that he would have liked to, but he definitely uh, supports me. And especially now as he's on his own journey too, um, he's coming to see these things and changing too. But yeah, he definitely didn't uh, protect me. And again, that's something that um, probably moved into the self-reliance theme as we're talking about this. I'm just, hmm. Hmm. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how things get revealed the yeah. more that we talk about it, right? Um, and then back to your stepmom. So that was the same stepmom nope. that you so have they, today. They were they were in the process of splitting up, and uh, that was a long drawn out thing that I was glad that I moved out early for. So they eventually split up. I never saw her again from that. I never saw her around, and it's not really talked about. So from there, he okay. I had moved out, and he met my stepmom shortly thereafter. And uh, they've had their own crazy journey that has been like wildly spiritual and amazing and a whole bunch of like the situations that come to form somebody's faith and believe in a higher power. They've had that going on in their own way. So it's been they're they're at an amazing mm -hmm. place. And um, yeah, they're still together and their lives have totally changed as well. Our journeys have been really different, but our the spirituality piece, it's funny because my stepmom she got spiritual first, um, found spirituality first in that path. And uh, at first I was like, oh, you know, she'd be talking about it or she'd be showing me things. And um, I would I would listen kind of, and I'd be like, oh, this is really wishy-washy. And now I'm so grateful because she's got some like amazing um, understandings and tools and just, uh, she's an amazing support now as I'm on this spiritual path of recovery. Okay, cool. Yeah. And, you know, for any of the listeners out there, I'm glad Janine, like really corrected or not corrected, but just brought to light the fact that, you know, her dad has changed a lot. And, you know, there's a lot of things in human beings that they do things that maybe isn't how they wanted to do them, but we're all kind of growing and learning on this journey of life and healing. And your dad is no different, right? And, and, uh, you know, bringing the point up that he has changed a lot and um, is really important. And I, I often tell my story a lot. And, and I, what I forget to do sometimes is, you know, give credit to the people who I might have been telling the story about and maybe forgetting to show the listeners how how much different they are how my relationship with these other people are actually flourishing today and how much people do grow and change if they really want it right but you brought up another thing that i wanted to touch on so you know as you were speaking about your dad you felt some guilt in expressing it but it was your experience right i remember when i first put up these platforms and i had my youtube channel going this is a couple of years ago and I had been at my mom's and I was asking my mom if she had checked out my YouTube channel and this and that and you know I had parts of my story on there and whatnot and and she said yeah I have listened to some of your YouTube Bill and and she's like and I don't really like what was on there she's like you know some of those things that you put on there hurt me because some of my story is about my mom and how like my mom's life affected my life, right? My mom would date guys that would beat the shit out of her and I hated her boyfriends and I fucking would scream and yell and, and I said, I hate this guy. And you know, he ended up committing suicide and fucking all of these things, right? And he used to beat her and I'd see her come down the stairs all bruised and beaten. And so in that moment, when my mom said that, I said, yeah, mom, but that was my life. That was my experience. That's what I saw every day. That's how I felt. That's how my life was to me. That was the reality of my life in those moments. 
And she didn't like that. But I think in that moment, she really understood that. And so I've gotten over a lot of my own shame and guilt on how I talk about my story because of exactly what I just said, right? And, and I'm glad you have the courage to be able to share your truth too, right? Because without that real truth and honesty of how you grew up and how you perceived it, it's hard for people to relate to to us if we butter it up and we, we smooth it out like it was all good when it really wasn't, right? So I, I really commend you for, for doing that. And, you know, I think the more that you share, the more that that guilt and shame will go away. And, you know, maybe at some point you have the same conversation with your dad that I did with my mom. And, and there was healing there. And, and I'll finish with this on that point. Um, in that conversation, because there was so much I didn't know about my life, because my mom wasn't really around at first, I asked my mom that afternoon if she would ever go with me and speak to me and let allow me to ask her any question about my childhood that I was making parts up for because I didn't know and she said yeah and she said give me a bit so she could process but then like a couple months later she said yeah I'm, I'm ready you can ask me anything about your life that you want and then we drove out to the mountains we spent like five hours together and i asked her every question she answered me honestly and vulnerably and it just connected us even more and like my mom's always been my rock but that just really gave us a really tight bond so that was a beautiful thing that happened in my recovery which mm -hmm. was only about two years ago i, I like right? what you're so, saying here about anyway. you know um the more more than just me being more than me talking about it um to remedy the guilt and shame because i as I, as you were saying that i was thinking what's actually remedied the guilt and shame is is the conversations i've had with him along the way and 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 the fact that he's changed and been receptive to that so <clears throat> when when i mm. when i can talk about it now it's because i've talked about it with him and i feel like although there's a that part of me that's like, oh, I feel really guilty about exposing this part of him without him being there. It's like, no, like, this is my truth. And he gets that, like, and, and we've talked about this. And um, we actually just had a really good conversation when he was down here a couple months ago. And um, we were talking about just certain things in life that have happened to, and, and just how, you know, the, the ripple effect of things and how things unfold and in their time that they do. And we were having this conversation and he asked me uh, if, if he had contributed to the alcoholism or how he had contributed to the things that went on. And um, the conversation was really awesome. And it was like, you know, it's hard to really determine what, what, what went on. But at the end of the day, and I explained to him, like at the end of the day, it's like, it's that my body has never, ever had a good response to alcohol. So when I, when I drank, I said like, when I drink, I can't stop drinking. It, it's like, I take a drink and my body's like, give me more. You know, I put that phenomenon and the craving thing into play and it's go time. And then when I'm, when I'm not drinking, um, I'm thinking about drinking. And I told him like that, that stuff is like, I, I think that I could have had the best life. I could have been so sheltered and that, that would have still had me being an alcoholic somehow, you know, and we would have been having a different dialogue around the same illness. Um, and so in having that conversation, I said like, it reminded me of that Tony Robbins, not your guru um, on Netflix there when he's having the conversation with the daughter and the mom and she's all mad at the dad. And he's like, you know, if you're going to blame him for all the shit that's wrong in your life, 
you've got to blame them for all the things that you are too. And so I said, similar to my dad, I brought up that example. And I said, like, it doesn't matter what, what happened or how it panned out. Like, this is where I'm at. And this is like, I'm, I'm really happy with where I'm at and, and, and that I'm in recovery and that I am um, desperate for recovery and for a spiritual solution because a lot of people just go through life and they're restless, irritable, discontent or worse. And they don't ever get to a place where they, they want to seek seek God and they go through life with that gnawing ache of like, is there more? There's got to be more to life than this, you know, like I watch a lot of people do that. And so I said, you know, all the things that have happened, they're not good or bad. You know, you and I have been on the whole seemingly, you know, God's in the bad, he's in the good. And who are we to say this was good or bad? And I said, we just got to be thankful that at the end of the day, we have the close relationship that we do because that, that to me is, you know, we're here to love one another and we're here to have connections in love with one another. And that's what we have. And our relationship just continues to grow. So I don't think that trying to dissect the past and put some blame on it and analyze it to death to is impossible. So we just got to stay right here and continue to grow and develop our relationship and love. And that's that. So. Hmm. I love that. I love that. Um, so let's get back to your story. Um, I, re- I really want to hear about, you know, I guess we're into your 20s now. We're into your early 20s. Um, can you kind of give us a Cole's Notes version of how bad it got and then how you first got exposed to whatever recovery method was yeah, your first so exposure? Yeah, so I started dating a guy um, when I was about 15, 16. He was an older guy from Invermere and I, I I lied a bit about my age and so he started dating me he was 18 I told him I was 16 or something like that and he had found out that I was lying we broke up briefly and then we started dating again um, he was going to UBC at the time he was in his first year of school there and he knew about he was there actually when my stepmom had come to this house party and we'd been talking since then and he was like you got to get out of there like why don't you come to why don't you come to Vancouver with me and I thought oh okay so we went and he was a really responsible non-alcoholic normie so his parents were horrified that this grade 10 dropout was moving to Vancouver with him Um, but that's what we did and we got a place in Burnaby and I was actually thinking about this today if I was drinking during that time or not um and I, 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 a little bit, but nothing that stands out. What does stand out is I was having major panic attacks. So all of the things that I had been carrying by myself and suppressing and never expressing and all of this emotional stuff that had been going on, my body at this point was like getting, getting to a place where it couldn't hold anymore. And it was starting to manifest in, in a couple of different ways. One was a physical, like I had always had this crazy knot on the back of my leg that was on the back of my calf um, that was super painful during that time and then I had crazy panic attacks so um I was I was I think that that overshadowed any type of drinking because I was so anxious and um when anxiety goes unchecked for a substantial period of time you can get different symptoms around it um, one of those being this whole depersonalization and derealization. So like you feel like you're in a dream or you think your body's not yours, like just really weird dissociative thinking. 
and that happened during that time. And, and because it was um, at a time where this was all relatively new, this mental health movement has, it hadn't kicked off yet. Panic attacks weren't something that was like even really known about, let alone uh, talked about openly. So we were running around trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Um, I was so anxious that I was, I was anxious that I was panicked when I left the house and then I was anxious to leave the house in case I had a panic attack, which kept me in the house, which is also something that happens from panic disorder. So I was housebound most of the time. And I had this guy um, basically like going, trying to go to university. And then he was, had this really sick girlfriend who couldn't leave the house. So those next couple of years there, 16, 17, 18 were uh, a lot of really bad mental health, staying home by myself, and us trying to figure out what was going on. And so we eventually moved to Calgary for him to complete his last year of school. He got a co-op um, internship in Calgary. So we moved to Calgary in 1999, 2000 or so. Anyways, we moved there and um, I ended up seeing a psychologist. And I only we went to two sessions, one was with him and we showed up together very codependently and uh, she did the session and humored us. And then she said, you know, you got to come back by yourself. And I remember being like, why can't he come? You know, why can't it just be a meshman? I couldn't see it. And then I went to see her one more time. And um, by this point, for sure, I was drinking coolers in the bathtub. And I remember that because it was it was what I felt was helpful. I remember that was a helpful solution. So I was starting to pick up on the drinking at that time. So this psychologist, she says to me, um, in a, in a way. And I like, I can remember this so well. Cause I was like, it was the jumping off place of my mental health where I couldn't imagine not making a change, but I couldn't imagine staying like I was. And so what this lady said changed, changed my life right in this moment. She said, when you put all your ba eggs in one basket, you're not going to be able to stand on your, your own two feet. So like, You've got this guy and he's your boyfriend, but he's also kind of like your dad because he's he's like taking you around to the doctor's appointments and really doing things for you that you should be doing for yourself. And he's your bank account and you're not working and he's, you know, he's doing all these decisions and you're just kind of sitting at home drinking coolers in the bathtub. And uh, she's like, you're, you're not going to get better unless he's down on your own two feet. And so how she meant it and how I heard it, I like, I, I'm not exactly sure, but I left there with the resolve of I need to leave him. So I don't think she was saying that, but that's what I left with. And uh, what she was really saying was like, giving somebody all of this, this control outside of yourself, of course, you're going to be anxious because you don't have any control, which is so funny, because like, as I progressed into alcoholism, the whole the whole thing is about control, right? So I uh, left there. And I went to Medicine Hat and um, moved back in with my grandma. So at this point, I was 18. So I finished up school in Medicine Hat that the year I caught up and managed to somehow graduate and I started going to the bar. And so it was, it was at the bar where you would order like vodka and, you know, the harder alcohols. And I started getting into trouble, just drinking too fast, getting into the blackouts, getting into the dangerous situations really as the the Jekyll and Hyde where you're totally normal sober and then you get drunk and it's this like nightmare where I was picking fights I was um just belligerent I was 
it was like a demonic possession in a lot of ways where I would lose mm. completely who I am. And people would say like my eyes would change and I would just be gone and uh, not myself at all. I'd wake up the next day and not have a clue. There'd be holes in the drywall or one time I smashed my roommates. She had a Dalmatian, a Dalmatian phone from Disneyland that she got when she was younger. And every time this thing rang, it would go, Master rang when I was drunk and I <laughs> threw the thing down and I all I remember is this flash of like with my foot. And so when I woke up the next day and she was she's she was a friend, I can continued I met her in grade three and we continued friends. She's still my best friend today. Um, but she brings up that phone. I'll bring up the phone sometimes. And the next day I remember feeling the the by now it was the full on full horse the four horsemen, right? So I remember waking up the next day and I was like shit okay looking around and the whole house was destroyed and this phone and i i thought holy shit i think someone broke in so i like she was pissed off she did she was still sleeping when i left for work and uh, she called me the next she called me at work and she's like what the f happened last night I'm like i don't know i think somebody broke in she's like that was you and I'm like, no, why would I trash the apartment? And she's like, I don't know why you do anything. And I'm like, no, I said, there's no way. And it like literally someone had flung food out of the fridge. Like the whole place was destroyed. And I had like no recollection. So I'm telling her that someone broke in. And I said, that there's no way that I would just come home and start. She said, Janine, nobody broke in. This is just the shit that happens when you drink. And then I had this, this fucking flash of my foot going down on the phone and the, the Dalmatians went. And so I was like, oh my God. And I said, okay, I think it was me. And she hung up on me. And so that was, that time with her was really a lesson I look back on and often bring up as a, as a way of explaining codependency and how alcoholism affects the family. So I moved in with her and I like my drinking, she didn't know what was like, she moved in without knowing about my drinking. And my drinking was so outrageous. And she, here she was like, and she's a, she's not an alcoholic. She's not a, and, and she got slowly suckered into a place where she was actually coming to the bar that I worked and doing my cash out. Cause I'd be so drunk by the time, by the time it was all over. And I was, I was telling a friend wow. this the other day and they're like, she was an, she was an employee. Right. And I was like, no, <laughs> holy, but yeah, like it just to a place where she, Suddenly she's doing my cash out for fear of like the rent not getting paid or me losing my job or whatever. And we had, we had to take a couple of years off that friendship because she got so enmeshed with the alcoholism and there was so much resentment and so much like, oh, it was, it was really gnarly. And uh, the codependency came as a result of sticking around and with an alcoholic. You have no choice. You are held hostage. You're either getting into this codependent situation mm -hmm. or you better, you better take off because there's no having a normal relationship with an alcoholic like that. So, um, from. And then, and then that and one then on that was, one was born. born yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> it's very interesting when we talk about that because like it was our younger immature, um, selves, but like, it's still pretty outrageous the things that we were doing even back then like and um she tells me she, mm -hmm. tells, she told me this like after i went to treatment she goes my dad was in aa so her dad went to aa for a long time and he he's not a drinker and i said why didn't you tell me about aa before that 
So she's like, I don't know. I didn't think you were an alcoholic because I was young. And that's how everybody was drinking, you know. Nobody really, everybody just thinks you're a bad drunk. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think there was like, I thought I was a bad drunk that couldn't handle alcohol. But the term alcoholic, I didn't associate to myself at all. So from there, I, um, so my drinking continued like that. Crazy moments like that made a lot of the the stories that I look back on where I'm like, wow, that was like dangerous and fun and wild. And I, you know, it was, it was like the highlight reel of my drinking, but also the really scary um, things that I would never want to do again, nor have my kids do. That was kind of the drinking. So it was like lots of parties, lots of like living on the edge, so to speak. And the, the, um, the stuff that movies make alcoholism to be. And then it got to a place where I was working at a pub and I, and I discovered cocaine. And I <clears throat> realized that this was what I needed to control my drinking. So <clears throat> I was working in this pub and I was um, really surprised to see how much cocaine was being used and like by the people who I never would have suspected. And um, I started dating a person who was selling cocaine and um, <clears throat> that made, it was like steady cocaine use for about three months. And during that time, uh, some people called into Child and Family Services and then they intervened and I went to my first treatment center. So the first treatment center that I went to, that was a 28 day program, um, which gave me a opportunity to take a look at some things. I learned some helpful things, I suppose. Uh, but I was really angry with the girl at the time who, uh, so I was 24, this girl was about my age, this counselor. And she was telling me that um, my problem was not cocaine, which I was clinging. I was clinging to it that it was, and I was convinced. And really that was just, you know, the disease, the disease in me think, trying to trying to justify the alcohol use and hold on to that because I did, I did not want to get, get rid of that solution. So um, I'm arguing with her that it, I'm like, I'm here because of cocaine use. Like, that's the problem. She's like, well, no, the problem is, you know, you're drinking and you probably wouldn't have done the cocaine, you know, the common sense stuff. You wouldn't have done that if you were drinking. And I, I was holding on to the idea that the problem was cocaine. And I, I believe that. So when I was arguing her, it was really like I was arguing myself and I didn't want to let it go that I couldn't drink anymore. So I came out of um, that treatment center and I, uh, oh, I came out of that treatment center and I went into school because I was, I was so offended by this girl's opinion that I said, how did you, how did you do this? How did you get this job? And she told me, so I went and signed up at the college to go do the same thing. Um, and I, so it was one of your counselors or psychologists, psychiatrists in treatment that called yeah, you out on and I was so offended that I said, how did you get this job? And then off I went doing the same things that she said. And my whole idea at this time was to come back and do this job and really just stick it to her and say, see, I told you it was the cocaine. And so, yeah, that's like, I was thinking, what did I do when I got out of treatment? Oh yeah, I signed up for school. So I am the resentment. resentment. Yeah. Well, and you know, it worked for me in this way that it like it inspired me to go to school. Um, and it was in going to school and it's, um, 
it, I don't know if it was my, my search for like, I really wanted to figure out what was wrong with me. Cause I knew that there was something not right with me. Um, and maybe I could find this in school or maybe I could heal myself in school. I don't know what exactly my determination for this, because as I, I got into school and, uh, I, I met this teacher who had put this program together and she was so passionate about it. So this program that she had developed for addiction counseling, she like, it was, she just did such a good job looking back. I didn't, I didn't know if it was good or bad at the time. Um, but she took one look at me and she said, mm, you need to, you need to do some work here. Like, um, it was the first day of class and she was explaining that we would need to have a child welfare check. Um, to go do practicum. And I thought, oh, hmm, okay, well, that should be okay. I, I'll, I'll ask her. So I said, just like, I just cringe thinking about this. So I was like, so like, um, I had my daughter taken away for three months and, you know, they made me go to treatment or whatever, but I did that and now I'm good. And so that should be okay. And she just was looking at me and I said, what? And she's like, someone took away your right to mother. You need to look at that. And I kind of was just like taken aback. And uh, so that's what I mean. Like, I don't know what was driving me to, to go to school the way that I was driven, but I, I was like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do this well. And then this lady, just my teacher, she really pushed me. Like she pushed me in a way that maybe she was pushing my ego. I'm not sure, but I was like, I am going to do this. So she told me that she wasn't going to let me continue in the program until I did a year of some 12 step stuff. And uh, that was my first kind of mm. um, kick at recovery. And it was, it was really, uh, I kind of wanted it, but I kind of didn't. So I was going around the room, taking what I wanted and leaving the rest. This lady said, you have to go do some 12 step work for a year. And this lady was like working in your uh, This lady was path. the, um, creator and instructor for the addiction counseling program. Mm -hmm. Okay. So okay. I spent a year doing that. And although I wasn't um, wanting to necessarily get sober, I wanted to not drink um, because I wanted to complete the program. And she had really hooked me in um, what the program was and there was something so attractive about what she, what she, there was a magnetic pull to how she was. And I, I'm, I'm going to guess it was her, her spirituality and her, just her wisdom and the way that she held herself. And, um, she just really wanted something that I had. And so I went to, um, this year of, not drinking and as a result of just kind of sitting around not really trying i ended up not drinking anyways and decided i'm going to not drink through addiction counseling and a lot of that was because i think i was i was doing a lot of work in just the part of being in school because we were journaling and then the teachers were um reading our journals we're talking about that we're filming our counseling sessions um and there are real stuff and then we also had to go to the college um counselor to experience that as a client. And so there was a lot of like work being done um, without me really knowing that it was work being done. And uh, when I got back after a year, um, 
she had said to me, she's like, you need to, um, we did a little assessment and she's like, you need to learn how to have emotion and you need to uh, not be so brash. You're like a bull in a china shop, she said. And that was like the... <laughs> so was she sending you to the 12-step fellowship program because she knew you were a raging alcoholic and she wanted, and because you were in a addictions class, she wanted you to get the insight behind the 12 steps. Yeah, Was there kind of like two I think, reasons here or did, did she explain no, but any I, of I, that? I'm pretty certain that it was because of my, like, I, and then I totally justified like why I, like, I just went to a treatment center because I, my CFS took away my child for three months and I had to go to treatment, but I did that and now I'm good and whatever. And she was just looking at me like, someone took away your right to mother <laughs> you need to look at that so i think what she was what she was doing there was looking at somebody mm. who all they had done was put the plug in the jug or whatever right they they had done nothing to actually cure the spiritual problems that they have as a result of their alcoholism and um do any of the healing on the level that it needed to be to to live let alone to go out and to practice some of this stuff in real life so she was sending me to mm -hmm. AA be because she's sending me to a 12-step program because she saw that I had no solutions that all I was doing was being sober meaning all I was doing was not putting alcohol in my system and I was still probably really unmanageable on the inside so <clears throat> from there I um completed that program and I uh, I got some good quality sobriety for um, during that time uh, as a result of doing um, the deeper work and doing applying some things to my life that um, that I didn't upkeep so <clears throat> after I left Calgary so I'm jumping around I went to Calgary to do my internships and there was some really good recovery in Calgary. And I was going to a lot of um, different meetings and spending time with sober people. And I was doing a lot of things that fell to the wayside after I completed school. And I kind of went back to my old life, hanging around people who were drinking and people who weren't necessarily uh, believing in some of the solutions that I had been working in my life. And it was slowly, it was slowly over time that I forgot those things and that I um, started justifying some things or twisting around some things, making it um, like, oh, well, maybe I don't need to do X, Y, Z, or maybe that was just for good for the time, or maybe, you know, it's been this long, so maybe now I, I would drink differently or, um, and so it was really slowly and um what was tricky about it is that when i did start drinking again the monster that was there before was gone so i wasn't violent i wasn't there was it was a much more tamer drinking so that was confusing so when i was drinking i thought that i thought that i was i thought i was better i thought that i healed it from from all of the mental health solutions and from learning about myself and from you know in a, learning about myself combined with doing some things that were different and expressing emotion i mean all the things that had happened in in that time when i was in school a lot of it worked 
for um, for what it was. Like it wasn't of no value, and it definitely changed me. Um, but I thought that it changed me enough that that I could continue to drink safely, and that was very tricky because it took a bit <laughs> for it to catch up to me. Whoa! Yeah, how quickly we forget, right? And then you got some of the evidence to kind of back it up, right? And it's just like. Hmm. I've done a lot of work on myself. I've, I've went through all these mental health like programs and been able to look at myself and grow and probably heal. And, you know, I'm drinking now and maybe I'm not what I thought I was or what they were telling me I was. And then so, you know, like in the book, it says the idea that we can drink like normal people has to be smashed. Many of us, you know, um, pursue this illusion to the gates of insanity or death, right? And But you, you, you weren't even close to being ready yet, right? You, you thought you had, you weren't an alcoholic. Yeah, so then I went on to, to getting all the things, right? All the things that we're supposed to get in life, you know, putting together. I had, I had my two oldest kids by now. They were, they were young, five and five and three, maybe. And, uh, I thought, I'm just going to, and this, this comes from as a direct result with my childhood. I was like, I am just going to raise them by myself and nobody's going to get in my way and nobody's going to mess my shit up. And I'm just going to, me and the kids and my career. And so I went, I started down that avenue of like getting educated, moving up in my career, getting educated, doing some things in my career, getting the house, you know, getting the cars, doing the things that we're taught to. You know, this, this is how you, this is how you progress in life. And every time you move up, you're going to be happier. You're going to feel this, you're going to feel that. And, uh, it works sometimes it works till it doesn't work. Cause you, you, it takes a bit till you realize it doesn't, doesn't work. Um, I was listening to a podcast this morning that was talking about, um, Olympic athletes that they, they train so hard for this, for the Olympics and they train for years and they've got this goal and, and the depression that comes like is so common for these Olympic athletes when they when they finally win and then there's nothing they spent their whole life moving up to this goal and then they hit the goal and then the, and then it's nothing and I think that that's like how it is for a lot of people including myself where it's like I'm the goal is is the house the kids the the cars the status the job the whatever it is material material and then you're getting it you're, and, and then it's like okay what is the goal like I think I hit the goal that I had for myself and now, now what, you know, you can only go so far. And, and, you're, and I started to see that the goal isn't, isn't actually the goal, that it was just this illusion. Um, and I started to see, see that. Mm -hmm. And by the time I saw that I was so trapped in it that I didn't know how to get out. So be, probably four years before I actually went to treatment, did I start to notice this last time? So did I start to notice that I was like, geez, like, what I'm doing is not making me happy. And how do I get out of it? So is there a line in the literature that reminds you of exactly what you're um, talking about? The second delusion that you speak of that, you know, if we, the delusion that we can wrest satisfaction or happiness out of the world has to be smashed. Yeah. Is he or she not a victim of the delusion that we can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this, out of this world if we only manage well? And like, just to reiterate, mm. like victim means somebody mm -hmm. that's been tricked or duped, right? And you were, you were tricked and you were duped and to whatever level or degree, most of us are tricked or duped. That 
all of these things from outside of ourselves are going to make us happy. The car, the woman, the man, the family, the job, the status, all of these goals that you're trying to obtain, you hit all these goals and you're like, okay, it's fucking an illusion. And in the book, it talks about it's the delusion, right? And a delusion is an ideal that I hold to be firmly true. But when I look at the evidence, like you just described, mm -hmm. it's actually not true. But I still hold on to the ideal that this is going to be true. But really, it's not true. And to smash that is very, very difficult. Smashing those delusions is really hard because they're societal belief systems that you grew up into based on the foundation of our society of individualization and and the billboards and the parents and everybody talks about it and shows you it and and you try to wrest your own satisfaction and happiness out of this if you manage it well if you pry it and manipulate it and get things in life and you get all the chess pieces on the chessboard of your life in the right position so that you can checkmate life but the thing is, is there's no checkmate of life that the best part of your whole journey was probably the journey to the goals because the journey mm -hmm. is the fucking destination, right? That's where you're building a lot of your, your self-confidence and your truth, right? And and as an alcoholic addict, we'll fucking burn it right to the fucking ground here, right? So so thanks for bringing that up and, and knowing that piece in the literature. Yeah, that's, like that's when cool. I when I look back to <clears throat> when I was when I was starting to develop a faith in God and using using a spiritual solution um, to to uh, anchor me. I was, so the, that was practicum during addiction counseling. That was 2010. So I was going back and forth, if you can picture this, with a five-year-old and a two-year-old. I was going back and forth twice a week for these eight months because I, I had family court going on because my ex didn't want the kids in Calgary. Um, and then I had, I was working a job in Medicine Hat and then doing my practicum in Calgary. So I had a little basement suite and I was driving these kids back and forth and I had papers and I had like, assignments and readings and groups and like the, the, being at the practicum and that work and then working on the weekends and just raising kids and when I think back it's it's crazy to me how calm that period of my life is and how how present I was and how unafraid and and how living in the moment and I didn't have fear like I was just kind of going taking it a day at a time an assignment at a time there was definitely some hard moments I remember one time I um I came up to Calgary just to get a day in before my practicum but the practicum ended the, like ended on like the first or second or something so I ended up sleeping in my van in the Walmart parking lot in Strathmore just to get it done and because I didn't have a place to stay and I didn't have a lot of money as a student so I just slept in the van and did the two days and whatever. So I, I did a lot of things and it was more of like an adventure around it rather than a fear because I knew that, that God had me and I was I was um, calm. Like the, the, it's matching the serenity and the calamity, you know, that line in the book. What is that? Where it's like, he's able. Just to the extent that we do is we think he would have us and we humbly rely on him does he enable us to match calamity yes, when with you, serenity? I love that you can just, thank you. And when you say that, I always think of that time in my life where it's like, where that should have been a lot of calamity. And it was just like, it was serenity. And uh, it took about a year to fall away from that, um, you know, to stop seeking God and to self, 
creeps back in for me. And, and I, I think, you know, the, the, the part of the, the self that is chasing this materialism. And, and when you, when, when I started to see like, this isn't making me happier, I'm actually more anxious and, and the anxieties were creeping back in and the, and I'm starting to feel like, okay, like I'm doing all this stuff, but, but, but the crazy thing about it is that everybody's like, good for you, you know, good for your graduation. Oh, you bought your house. Good for you. Oh, nice car. Good for you. Or like all the things that a person's doing. And this is like how it is in society where it's like the hip hip hoorays and all this external validation for all this shit that's making us sick. And, you know, if people aren't talking about this like this, the person's left going, well, what, what the fuck? Like I'm doing all these things and all these people are telling me hip hip hooray. So this must be working for everybody else. When I go on my social media, I see it's looking like it's working for everybody else. And then you got, you know, this, the shame around it that you don't want to say anything because you're the only one that it's not working for. And so you keep humming along, humming along. And really you've just got uh, the soul sickness like everybody else, but no one's actually talking about it. So that came up with my dad too, where I said, you know, we're lucky that we have like a spiritual solution, you know, rather than a material one. And that we've, we've come to places in our life where, where we see, you know, like, holy shit. Cause sometimes a, you don't see, and then B people can see it. And then it's like pur purgatory where it's like, you got half, half your, half yourself is in this, this old life and, you, and your other foot's trying to get into this new life, but you don't know how, cause you're so trapped with your bills and your mortgages and your car payments and your, your job that you can't back out of. Cause how are you going to pay for everything? So it's, uh, it's pretty fortunate to me that addiction got me out of it because I had been complaining to a, a couple of people. I'm like, I am trapped in this, like, why am I doing, I was in, in the middle of my master's and I was almost having a, like I was drinking wine, writing papers, trying to get through, um, like barely sleeping, like wanting to quit so many times, but being unable to because I've invested in the education and I can't quit my job and I can't and I was just like I felt so trapped and I almost didn't make it through and I almost like lost my job and I almost like all these things came so close so in in the way that um addiction destroyed all, almost everything that I had it also has set me free and the uncomfort that I'm feeling in in sobriety now like it it gets pretty uncomfortable and I, it can throw me back quite a bit um, at times, but it's like nothing compared to what I was living in when I was like in that purgatory of holy shit, like I see this isn't working, but I'm so trapped and not knowing what to do. Right. Um, I want to touch on that. So basically you're getting all the pats on the back and the validation which kind of makes your pride and ego and party you feel good. Maybe it even makes a little bit of your spirit feel good because along the journey, you're getting the things that you kind of envisioned. But as you're getting these things, you know, it's like, congratulations, welcome to bondage yourself. Congratulations, here's some more bondage yourself. Congratulations, congratulations. And there's kind of like this mixed up feeling inside as you keep going down this path. At first, it's not bad. But then as you acquire more and you're kind of hitting these targets still and you're just like, something's not like adding up here. And then you, your pride is now fighting because you don't want to really speak up against getting these things that 
you kind of wanted your whole life that everyone else is is getting or has and like there's this really disconnect inside of us and but the real the reality is when you close the door and you're at your by yourself you're still mm -hmm. you're still you and nothing's really changed because that spiritual malady that victim you've been tricked by the societal belief systems and a lot of the indoctrination of what society says is going to be your life and make you happy you, you have to stick to that because that's what pride says and then you're still you and things aren't really better but you did get some relief of some of these items as you mm -hmm. went down the path but here's the thing there's a lot of people out there that are not alcoholics and some that are that are not happy when they close the fucking door either there's so many people in loveless relationships because they are now trapped into these based on the world of the material and the ideologies and pride people not living with their own truth and and it, it becomes like a disconcerted weird fucked up party that's not fun in our head and then we don't know what to do and there's a lot of confusion in the subconscious and the conscious mind and, and playing all these mental gymnastics. And then it brings us back to the mental health pandemic or epidemic mm -hmm. that we're suffering from. And you and I have had many discussions on this mental health epidemic crisis. Mm -hmm. We've agreed in many respects that it's actually not a mental health crisis. It's a spiritual health crisis that looks like it's a mental health crisis and because our society doesn't focus on really any real spiritual um components in our in our foundation mm -hmm. of our society there's little sects of it and little pieces and there's certain people doing it but as an overall viewpoint in society it's not really focused on so everyone is just trying to fix the symptoms of the anxiety the symptoms of the depression the, the symptoms of the physical health that is manifested into bad physical health through the anxiety the depression the stress and, and all these things right and you know i think that's the biggest thing that i would like to bring to the world and mm -hmm. you and i have had a lot of talks about this and and i know that that's kind of the direction that you'd like to go to in right whatever yeah, and, way possible and right? that's that's a, one of the contributing factors like it's such a complexity you know trying to untangle addiction but one of the contributing factors that i definitely can see clearly is that as i went through my social work degree i started learning um things that aren't necessarily a solution for me that are really cool as tricks and you know try this try that it sounds cool but like not gonna you know when i'm when i'm sitting in this existential crisis of like holy shit nothing that i'm doing is working and i'm like deep breathing does not get me out of it you know that's a that's a cool trick for for maybe some you know i'm scared to do some public speaking maybe but you know, the solution for this existential soul crisis isn't found in a lot of the um, clinical interventions for that you find in addiction and mental health. So my alcoholic mind was like, oh, and I, re I recall this happening, like, oh, look at all these other solutions that there are. Look at all these easier, softer ways. Oh, let me try this and let me try that. And um, all of these things that I learned how to, to, how to do 
that are effective in some contexts, but when it comes to like what I think that we're lacking, um, I don't think that a lot of those interventions are, <clears throat> I think that if a person is depressed, then it gets focused, like what you're saying, it gets focused on this depression when, when it's, that's a misdiagnosis to me, where the depression is a symptom of the actual thing, which is the spiritual malady. And so it's coming up as depression and then you're getting an intervention for this depression, but that's not it. So you can CBT yourself all, all, all you want, which isn't going to solve the void in yourself that, that God is. So maybe it'll give you some relief. And for some people, it, it gives a lot of relief, but, but in, in us is that fundamental idea of God in all of us. And so however that's manifesting for people and, and a lot of recovery, um, regardless like a recovery from an addicted system and a spiritual malady um you need self-awareness and some people are just blindly going blindly achieving blindly obtaining and um, getting and doing and people like i see people they never get it and they're not open to it and um and so these these ideas that this mental health thing are perpetuated by um people who are not seeing the need for the spiritual solution but i believe that because spirituality is creeping it creeps in so it creeps into the mental health world because it's a real thing so like the research doesn't lie and so you got to mention it as spirituality but part of it i think is and this is a little bit kind of off off topic of what we're talking about but i feel i should say it is like people are so offended nowadays they like to be just like told it's going to be okay and, and nobody wants to be told you know you need god so spirituality is like it's just like a little mm, gotta throw it in there because the research says that it, it's there otherwise they wouldn't they wouldn't put it in there because it's not really focused it's just kind of like and you could try spirituality you know so with being in the mental health mm. stuff um and there's lots of stuff that that is effective for for certain things um and that have has been highlights of my career uh, but when it comes to this stuff, we're talking about like the real um, stuff behind closed doors that people battle within themselves. Um, I think that putting mental health as the solution confuses people. And an example of this is like when I when I sponsor and I go in go in to talk to somebody about um, defects, right? How are you going to do any sort of uh, appraisal on yourself and inventory and say like, you know what, I'm being afraid. I am being really selfish here. I'm being whatever, whatever, when, when you have a label to blame everything. And so it's really hard to do recovery in a way that you're, you're healing those parts of yourself if you have a label to, and people, honestly, there's a lot of people that just, they, they really truly believe that it's, it's, this and, and these things are because of that and so as long as you've got this label that you're holding on to um it prevents you from doing the heavy heavy lifting that is really going to cause the the change and the movement and on that note you touched on it already a lot of our world says you're okay just the way you are you're okay just the way you are. Everything's going to be okay. No, you're not fucking okay just the way you are. No, everything's not going to be okay. It doesn't get better. It usually gets worse. And if you don't take a good look at yourself and take the personal responsibility to, to 
work yourself through this and I would hopefully suggest a higher power to go with you. But our society doesn't want to talk like that, mm -hmm. right? But you and I both know because higher power and God, creator, spirit of the universe, whatever, is such a huge part of the spiritual awakening and recovery. We have no issues talking about it, but the normal world has issues talking about it, right? But we, we both know that's the way to go, and it is the solution to the mental health aspects. And I'm not here to bash mental health because it's a huge component of spirituality. It's a massive component of spirituality. But in the mental health world, spirituality is not a massive component right. in yeah. what they're doing. So in essence, there's a lot of trying to fix a fucked up mind. What and I really noticed that like um, the last, so the, think of the last conversation that you and I had when I was in like, distress right and i'm i'm struggling and you're just like telling me how it is and you're telling me and it was making me feel better like i because i was like okay that is the truth and so it was like i was like okay and even though what you were saying was like like i think a lot of people would be offended or think it was harsh or whatever um it because it's true like in the way that you were saying it is like this is what you're doing and this is what is causing you the pain and this is like the the truth of the matter and and because you're coming at it from a place of like bringing God into it and, and the truth of it all and the love love in it all. And it's like, that that's effective to me where I am right now. That That's effective for me. Where if I was to phone someone else who came at it from a place of the world, I would get a completely different message. And it would be like, I would be the victim and they would be like co-signing my crap. And although it would feel potentially good for a minute because I'm tricking them and I know that I'm tricking them because on some level I know that I've caused my own problems, um, I would get off the phone and I would not feel any relief and I would not get any better as a, as a um, person into recovery and as a person who's trying to shed myself of the things that are causing my problems. Um, so if, if I today, like if I need, if I need to um do some work around things i'm very careful who i speak to about it because those two messages are very different like how you're saying we have these conversations about you know higher power and relying on god and all that and for us it's normal but for other people it's not and in recovery uh having discernment of who you go to for for your for your um advice and to um, bring somebody into your world and your and your problems that you're having um, you have to do that very carefully because it can be confusing if you don't. And, you know, for anyone that might be listening that isn't spiritual, that doesn't believe in a higher power or, or whatever, or you're on the fence about it, you know, I was too. And and I'm sure you were too. And most people in recovery were on the fence or, or wanted nothing to do with it. But, you know, since I've, said, okay, I'll work with this higher power. My life has changed in miraculous and ways that I cannot even explain. And so I guess my advice is, if you don't believe in a higher power and you don't want to believe in a higher power, you're depriving yourself of the best life that you could possibly have. And you can think that I'm full of shit or your ego can say, I don't believe what this guy's saying and I'm actually offended. That's your right. But at the end of the day, 
this is the this is the truth, right? And it's not just my truth based on my insecurities and brokenness. It's the truth of hundreds and thousands of people that I've seen and worked with that there's no negative return on investment from working with a God in your life, a higher power, a, an unknown entity. There is no negative return on investment. It's only a positive return on investment if you are willing to even give it a try. And just by giving it a try, you will get results. And it's the facts, man. It's the facts. So anyway, and the, uh, before we go on to finish, like close up the interview, I want to really highlight on this interview, and there's so many pieces that we could have brought into this because it's such a open subject, your recovery and where you are. So just quickly, you come into the recovery, you didn't accept it, you drink again, um, you hear the certain kind of messages that you hear. Um, coming back this time, what's different and anything in between that you maybe want to fill in there? Well, let's kind of yeah, catch us up to where we are. Catch it up today. into where I'm at and how that went. Um, so, yeah, I, like, like I said, I went to school some more, got some stuff, um, did the things that society says to do. And like I was, I felt relatively okay until I wasn't feeling okay and um, realizing I was trapped. And uh, the drinking um, started to pick up uh, pre-COVID, um, going into COVID. And then after um, I had a, <clears throat> I had a quick turn of events, like it, when it picked up, it really picked up and it didn't take too long. So what changed was that um, I was checking into hospitals to um, get help, which I never thought I would do, it says in the book, you know, we're voluntarily checking ourselves into um, institutions. And I was like, who would ever do that? But I was doing that. And then I was starting to get suicidal and a couple of attempts. And uh, all of the things that I had collected along the way, um, I just I just knew, like, I was like, hey, like, I have tried, like, everything I can think of. My grandma raised me very Christian. I've watched other family members um, experience, like, the spirituality of Buddhism. Um, I've researched and I've taken, like, philosophy of religion courses. And I've, like, spent years in the church. And I'm familiar with the literature that, you know... I've read it along the way and then some and then some and through my education, through my experience, through all of this stuff, I was just like, nothing like lines up like the, the things that are true, they're all kind of lining up to the need for a spiritual solution. And I never was able to do that in church. So I as much as I wanted to, and I believe that 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 is a reason that people have a hard time coming into um, a spiritual place, because it's like, well, I've been to church, I've done that, like I've tried. And I think that like as much as you experience religion to connect to God, there's there's a lack of like, how do I do that out there? Like it's, how do you actually do that? And so um, by, by doing the 12 steps, um, it, that's what it's there for. The ultimate goal is to connect you with the higher power. And I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna give it a try because like what I'm doing is going to kill me um, or at minimum, um, like I'm going to live a life that I know that I'm trapped in and that, I'd rather be dead because like, you know, sometimes being alive and knowing and not being able to get out of something is way worse than just 
not not being around as as gory as it sounds. Um, so I just was I didn't know how to continue anymore. So when I went to treatment, I was I was pretty open to whatever, and uh, I think that universe did what it needed to to align me with a lot of the people that I needed to combined with um, the the search and the the truth inside of myself that you know uh, finding a higher power that I can connect to is going to be my solution and it was like all the things I had been denying over the years all of the things that I was pushing away and the pieces of um, the, the truth that I had found along the way, all of the things just kind of started to align where it was like, oh yeah, I remember learning this and oh yeah, this is actually, all of this is relating. So it started to kind of come together in a way where things were making a lot of sense. Um, and, and it wasn't quickly, like it looks like things happened for me quickly because it's like I came in and then it was like, but all this knowledge was floating around with not like with nowhere to, to really go until I connected to a higher power. And from there, I was able to be like, okay, this has been true and this has been true and this has been not true. And it, it was a quick kind of sorting out and then seeking out. And so, like you had mentioned, um, seeking out higher level recovery and, and, and like, it wasn't like I was like, oh, that's lower level or that's higher level. I, I, I think higher level is like, I'm looking up to the truth, like I'm looking up to God. So that's like, when I say higher level, that's what I, what I see it as, is I'm, I'm just looking for the truth. And, um, I think, you know, for when I, when I seek God, the book says God doesn't make it hard, hard to find. And so it's like, I'm looking for people who are speaking a truth that's aligning to the higher power that I'm coming to believe in. And so I found some people along the way, yourself included, and I was just like, hey, I need some help. I need some help this time. And I was taking suggestions and I was like, you know, just really wanting um, this to work for me. And I could see clearly the ways that it didn't work for me and why. And I just was like, hey, so things have not happened quickly. They have not happened quickly for me. In fact, very, very slowly, but they have quickly come together as soon as I became willing. That's cool. So it's a really different experience this time around. Um, the universe has shaped things in, in quite a different order for you this time. And uh, as you kind of navigate this first year of recovery, you've seen a lot of relapses, You've experienced that early relationship that that went south mm. due to a relapse. Um, you're also, you know, a lot of uh, inner struggle trying to let go a lot of these behavior patterns, your own self-reliance that, as we have seen, was built for good reason through your whole life. Try not to rely on other people and, and you know, through your mom and your dad's relationships with you, you built this, like, woman that needs to do everything herself and and then even with your counselor at your first treatment it's like you know what fuck you i'm gonna go do this and i'm gonna show you so you're kind of like mm -hmm. you got that ingrained and relinquishing that has been really hard but you're doing it right so maybe if you can just maybe give our listeners a little bit of a little bit of insight on the relapses maybe why oh. do you think people are relapsing a um, little bit of a relationship advice and then how hard it's been to relinquish some of these defects and you did explain well what was working and it is 
It is your pillars is a yeah, big part of um, this. Why? Well, I think that the relapse is where people, I'm just plugging in my computer, where people, um, there's some relapses where you don't really need to analyze it to death because you can see, but the sneaky ones have been the, the place where I've been like, hmm, this is, this is very strange. I didn't see that coming. And that's actually like, um, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a, it's a been probably the biggest reason why I was seeking things out in the way that I was. Like it was one of the, the reasons to find why, because I had a friend who was just, you know, looked like they were doing all the things and um, looked like they were doing all right. Definitely didn't look like they were headed for relapse in the way that it went. And um, so why was that? Why was that? People had asked me, like, why do you think that is? And, and like, my original answer was, you know, you never know what goes on between someone and God. Like, you don't know what's really going on. Um, but you brought up along the way something that made sense. And this is just, like a hypothesis because really I don't I don't know but this fits to me for some relapses that I don't understand is the whole a person thinking that they're attaching to God and thinking that it's been God's will and and thinking that you know this is all all happening in a in a way that but not seeing that their hands are all over it and they're still trying to run the show and um a few months ago, that was something that I was pretty caught up with, if you remember that. And and I I was spinning out a couple of times. I was like, is this God's will or isn't it God's will? Because I didn't want that to happen to me. And I was trying to figure out, like, how would I know it's coming? And, and um, you had said, you know, you just you do this to the best that you can. And you try and come at things in love and have your, you know, be doing your 6, 7 and your 10 and your 11. And, and just really come at things with love and then don't. You don't have to overthink and be talking to be talking to people. And um, you know, when I think about that and looking back at relapses and stuff, the people that that where I haven't seen it coming, um, there are places where I'm like, oh, I can see how there was self there, that there was self there, and um, them not noticing. So I think that that's the importance of like pillars. And my advice that you're asking, like, what would, I, what would I advise at this point with a lot of things is like, pick up the phone earlier. Um, the last conversation we had there at the end, I had that breakthrough where you were like, you, you got to pick up the phone or whatever. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't have even known what I was picking up the phone over. Like, I didn't feel like I had enough material to pick up a phone and be like, I'm struggling because it didn't feel like I was struggling yet. But as we unpacked it, it was like, I actually could have pinpointed from when, from the moment of the trigger where I was like, oh, I'm feeling like emotionally disturbed. Like I see myself coming up all over this. And then instead of doing a 10 around it, like talking to someone immediately specifically within that 10, what did I do? Oh, I just selfed all over that self-reliance dogs. Let's go for a walk and let's go do all these things and let's try to distract myself and let's try to, you know, minimize it and, and logic around it. And I was uh, trying to apply logic to get through it and it, and nothing was working until the place that I was like spinning out. And when we finally connected over the phone, I didn't even really know what was going to come out because I didn't know what the problem was. And so we were able to pinpoint it. And then it was like, okay, like I did see that place where I was. And, it, and because it was like, it wasn't like a, a big disturbance. It was like a, 
it was like, it was, but it wasn't like it was, I had looked at something on social media, which triggered a bunch of like resentment. And then I just tried to nip it in the butt with logic and with getting out in nature and skipping the phone call. Cause it didn't seem that important. And I spun right out. And like, my advice is to really like, nothing is too small and, and the spin outs don't have to happen like they do. Um, and they're happening less and less, but it's like nothing is, is too, too big or small for the person that's on the other end of the phone. And I'm like coming to believe that. And, Sorry, and like, I always, I always say, uh, you know, you run around your life throwing matches around the house. Your life is the house and you run around your house throwing matches everywhere, which are all these little decisions based in self. The little self-reliance is the little, you know, let's sweep it under the carpets. But then because there's so many little matches burning, eventually the house is on fire and then it's burning down and you're in the rabbit hole. And then we finally reach out to somebody and it's like, fuck, you know how hard it is to help somebody when they mm-hmm. fucking the house is on fire? And, and for us to learn, okay, let's, let's make the call when I'm throwing the matches in my life around my house so that I can like stomp these little matches out carefully without any real ramification in my life, learn the lesson and kind of grow from there. But it takes most of us a, a long, calm, a long fucking time well, yeah, to get some I'm of this so stuff, right? To but my, with, to putting out my own fires with my self-reliance and my, my, uh, solutions that, that actually really don't work. And so I'm, I'm used to managing myself and to, to doing that. So something so small as being triggered off of an old memory on Facebook seems so, so small and so simple. And like, uh, it was a huge lesson today. Like I was still after we got off the phone, I was like, holy shit. Like when you said, well, you could have just phoned when you got emotionally triggered and done a step 10 around it. And I was like, like it doesn't have to get to that place to do a step 10 around it. That's what I got from that is like, I did know that I was triggered there. I did know what I could have talked about. And I, I just tried to apply logic and I tried to apply my own solutions. And then I still wasn't getting any relief. And by the time it turned into what it did, it took, I didn't even know what I was upset about. Like you, I was like, I don't even know what I'm talking about. And then it just comes out and then pinpointed back. I could have, I could have right there been like, okay, this is something I need to do a 10 on. This is like, I see it. And, and like, so the lesson in that was like the little things are going to actually turn into these big ones and it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, and as far as what, okay, I was just gonna say, as far as relationships, um, the relationship that I had in early recovery, it was, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have told somebody while I was in it that it was impeding my recovery or my growth because it felt like I was doing recovery things, but I was so early in recovery that I didn't even know what those defects were or what those recovery things were. So there was like, like step six and seven were coming up and I realized like I didn't even know how, what those even were. And so that shows the quality of my recovery was, was there that I didn't know what a six and seven was or how to actually turn, turn anything over to anything. Um, to a higher power or what that process looked like. And I believe that had I would have stayed in the relationship or continued to date and and have relationships, I wouldn't have went off seeking in the way that I have. And I would have slowed my growth substantially because I only have so much attention and so many hours in a day. And um, when I'm, when I'm in relationship, 
uh, that takes up a big chunk of time and attention and especially a new relationship. So, I mean, like my advice is probably not anything anybody's going to hear in early recovery because we do it anyways. I heard it and it's like, yeah, that, I'm different though. I, I got it. So it didn't like destroy me and it didn't, it didn't, what it did was it insidiously took away from my recovery in ways that had I continued onward, I wouldn't be where I am and it could have been a different outcome. So from that, I'm just like, nope, until I'm at a place that I'm like, my recovery is the most important thing. And, and I, it's not even that I'm like against it's, it's I don't think of anything except what I got to do for my recovery. So dating isn't actually a, a thing I'm sworn off or it's not, it's just like, it's not on my radar at all. Okay. Okay. So let's wind her down. For anyone that's new in their first year of recovery or anyone that's, you know, been in recovery and come back and they don't really get it. What, what's your message for somebody? And you can pick who that is. What's your message for somebody new or somebody that's a chronic relapser or both? What's your message for them? Yeah. Because they're listening. Yeah, if they I were sitting right in front of you. It doesn't have to be a struggle. Um, and that recovery is something that doesn't necessarily mean life's going to get easier right away. Um, and that I just, I hope that everybody can just get to a place where they have a higher, a sense of a higher power that, that whatever your conception of God or spirituality is, or if that, like, if that's your hang up, and I assume that's most people's hang ups, um, you can choose whatever you want. You can pick whatever you want and, you know, add to it. Mine's a collection of things. My grandma passed away while I was in treatment. And so she's in there and um, different things I've collected from different religions is in there and different like um, different success stories are part of my higher power that I can think of things that I've done that have worked out for me. And so my faith continues to develop and so does my recovery. And um, we've talked about sober patterns and that's something that's been helpful is that every time I get through something, so if you're struggling and you're trying this and it seems like, you know, you're not getting anywhere, um, that if you just keep going, you're going to be able to look back and see the growth that you've had and your faith will continue to grow. And so every time I make it through a struggle and every time that I, you know, find something like our phone call today where I get off the phone and I'm like, well, holy shit. So, you know, like to just hang in there and to know that early recovery is really difficult because it's a process of like, you're, you're really smashing everything that you knew and everything about yourself. And some of, some of the things about myself, like I love, I love some of the things that I have to turn over because it's not going to serve me because of course I love, you know, um, overindulging in ice cream, for example. And then that's a small example, but there's lots of things that I've done that feel good in the moment. That's like, like playing on my phone. I could, I could do something different. There's some things that are hard to turn over because they're like instant gratification. And, um, and so I'm doing all these things in faith that I'm going to grow and that after two years, I'll see something. So when I'm having a hard day and I'm like, okay, this is not getting anywhere. And these things aren't coming to me fast enough. You know, I'm not having the life that I want or 
the choices that I want to make, I can't make because it doesn't seem like that's an alignment for me. All these, all these reasons that come to me when I'm in a rabbit hole. It's like I, I gave myself till the two year mark that, you know, if I can't look back after two years and say, this is a better way to go, then I have the option to be refunded all of the bullshit I was doing before. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Okay, Janine, uh, we could sit here and chat for a long time. And uh, I do want to do a follow-up podcast with you somewhere down in the future here. Um, I also know that me and you are going to do another podcast here, like right away in regards to questions that you have, that many people have, that I'm going to do my best to try to navigate and answer. So we will do that right away. but for right now at this moment i just want to say thank you for joining me on on this video edition of the udr cast billward.life podcast and you know i'm wishing you all the best and you already know you can call me anytime and we can navigate whatever challenges you're going through together with my advice or without my advice or with my you know advice that sometimes cuts and hurts a little bit but also you know there's always love behind it so i just want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today and this will go out on an audio cast as well on the udr cast so i just want to thank you and and you know i know people are going to get a lot of value thank you so much for being you and for all that you do and for having me on today i i am honored okay and we'll catch up really soon janine thank you for tuning in to the udr cast We hope you have enjoyed this episode. The viewpoints and the opinions expressed today were solely of the individual sharing them. If you resonated with this episode, please follow us and share this link with anyone that may benefit from it. Please visit us at billward.life to see everything that we have going on. We can recover one person, one family, one community at a time.